Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. If you're visiting with us today, the congregation's been working through uh, this book in the Old Testament. You can find this on page 292 if you're using the Pew Bible. And I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, which is the same that you have in the, in the pew there. We are concluding today the story of the eighth judge in this book, a man named Jephthah, who we saw was an outcast uh, from his tribe and his people, and uh, had to leave, was disinherited, and then uh, when the Ammonites invaded the land, uh, they went and called him back, uh, because he was an accomplished soldier to lead them. Uh, last week we saw that he did, in fact, uh, win the, the victory, led his, uh, his soldiers to victory, freeing the people from oppression. Uh, but in the process of that, as he sought maybe more than what God had for him, wanting to be a king, uh, that um, he ended up losing his daughter uh, to be um, a servant in the tabernacle throughout her days. And so uh, he doesn't have any posterity, and so he's not going to be able to have a dynasty. Uh, now we read the concluding, the concluding verses uh, regarding uh, Jephthah's judgeship, and we see, sadly, it's another uh, example of God's people continuing uh, to turn away from him. Let's, uh, let's give attention here to God's word. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over towards Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon And the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up up to me this day to fight against me? Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, then they would say to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he would say Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. I'm not sure if anyone here noticed that our women's national soccer team uh, was knocked out of the World Cup last week. And that was uh, sad for a couple of reasons. One, uh, just the fact that they lost and they were the favorites going into the tournament. But more so that that loss was actually celebrated by some of their fellow citizens. 
Now you might be saying, why would Americans be celebrating the failure of our national soccer team? It's because in the last few years, this team has decided to wade into politics. And they've expressed this in different ways. And I would argue this team was probably the most popular sports team in our nation since maybe the 1980 Olympic hockey team. Uh, on their way to winning four World Cups and four gold medals in the Olympics, they were universally loved in this country until they took all that goodwill and capital and used it to try to start pushing political agendas. And so what should be a unifying group of people, and was at one time, has now become an agent of division in our country, so much so that some of their fellow citizens felt like not only could they not root for them, but they were actively rooting against them. Now, I'm not arguing for whether that was right or not. I'm just saying this is what happens. Uh, a group that has the potential to be unifying instead becomes a source of division. And we might like to think that's kind of an isolated, rare occurrence. But we would be wrong. Because it turns out that because human beings naturally struggle with pride, uh, that the, our natural bent is actually toward division and not toward unity. And what we see in this passage is a, a, a glittering example of that. It's, it's a tragic example of that. In what should have been a moment of unity and victory, it becomes the basis of a civil war. And because of the pride of the people, right? they push toward division and t instead of toward unity. And this is, I, I would argue, a challenge for each one of us because in our, re in our relationships, in our behavior in the church, uh, there's always a danger of division creeping in. And we've seen this even in our own denomination. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who have felt like they couldn't stay in our denomination and have left. And this has happened recently. And so we understand there's a propensity for division that we're always fighting against. But what I want us to see from the passage is that God overcomes that move toward division and actually pushes things back toward unity. He, he intervenes in such a way to overcome the natural inclination toward division. And so that's the main point as we look at this passage, that God mercifully overcomes your natural inclination toward division in order to build unity in his church. And children, if you want to draw a picture for me, maybe you could draw a picture of these, these men from Ephraim coming and asking Jephthah these questions. What is it that they're saying and what is their problem uh, with Jephthah? And listen as we talk about this together. There is an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. The first thing we want to notice here is that your natural instincts tend toward division. So we see in the beginning of our text, the men of Ephraim gathered together, cross over towards Zaphon, and then they confront 
Jephthah. And so if you have one of the maps that was in the bulletin, uh, there's a map on an insert that looks sort of like this. I had this map in there last week as well. So the key thing to understand here, you see the Dead Sea in the middle, that the Jordan River is flowing right down here. And so here is Ephraim to the west of the Jordan River. And then here is um, the region of Gilead uh, here. And so Gilead is a clan within Manasseh and Gad. And so um, uh, this, um, this man Jephthah is from the tribe of Manasseh. Uh, but he's in this region on the east of the Jordan River. And there then the nation of Ammon is next to him. And you can see the Ephraimites cross over the Jordan River to go and confront Jephthah in the wake of this great victory. And uh, what do they say to Jephthah? They say, why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you. So they're accusing them. Not, not only are they not celebrating, they are accusing Jephthah of wrongdoing by not inviting them to join in the battle. Uh, Matthew Henry uh, speaking about this, and these quotations are in the bulletin as well. Jephthah was now a conqueror over the common enemies of Israel, and they should have come to congratulate him and return him the thanks of their tribe for the good services he had done. It is a pity that kindred or relationship, which should be an inducement to love and peace, should be ever an occasion, as it often proves, of strife and discord. And uh, Matthew Henry notes that Ephraim and Manasseh, especially these two tribes, were close, both being the sons of Joseph. And children, kind of what Matthew Henry is saying here is it's bad enough if we pick fights uh, with other people at school that we're not related to, but how much worse when we pick fights with the people in our own family, our brothers and sisters, those who are closest to us. And of course, this is reminiscent of what happened in the Gideon story, if you remember that, because Gideon was also from the tribe of Manasseh, and after his great victory, the Ephraimites again uh, came and accused him of seeking glory. And part of what's important to understand here is that when uh, Jacob, the patriarch who, who uh, became Israel, was blessing his children, he had 12 sons, but he took his son Joseph and he elevated Joseph's two sons basically to the level of their uncles. He made, he made them equal uh, with the other, uh, his other sons, even though they were his grandsons. And those two sons were named Ephraim and Manasseh. And so they, they share a particular closeness, and yet instead of celebrating the triumph, here is Ephraim accusing them of wrongdoing. And sadly, this is sort of in line with the whole tenor of this book, which one commentator calls a story of progressive internal degradation or disintegration. Uh, we started this book with four good judges um, who came on the scene and, and did their work without any uh, controversy, Othniel and Ehud, Shamgar and Deborah. And then since that time, we've started meeting judges who are sort of mixed in what they have accomplished and, and how they've conducted themselves. And so we saw in the Gideon story 
And now in the Jephthah story, at the end of both of these stories, it ends in civil war. And this is what the author is trying to show us. In the absence of a king to unify Israel, they keep moving toward uh, accusation, suspension, infighting, and toward separation. And we ought to be able to relate to this, shouldn't we? we? We talk about our nation, and you can speak of red states and blue states. Uh, so, uh, so divided is our country over various political matters uh, that we have states that are uh, identified by which side they are. We have people unwilling to even talk to each other who disagree with each other on certain issues. And this, of course, isn't just a cultural thing. This is something that we've seen in the church. Uh, Sometimes people have described the Presbyterian church as the split peas uh, because of all the different versions. Even, you know, today you have the PCUSA, you have the PCA, you have the EPC, you have the OPC. Eventually you get to our little group, the RPCNA. And uh, there are others, even smaller because uh, so often people can't get along. Now, I'm not saying there are never any theological disagreements or things like that, but the point is that the whole motion is toward disintegration and toward breaking up into smaller and smaller groups. One of the things that I try to work on when I do premarital counseling with couples preparing for marriage is this idea of oneness. The Bible says that a man and a woman come together and become one thing, one flesh. And the problem is you're, you're trying to strive for oneness in a world that's trying to pull you apart. Society's trying to pull you apart. Your own selfishness is trying to pull you apart. And the constant battle you're facing is toward disunity and division. And it's a constant fight toward unity. So this is what we're seeing in this passage. Secondly, we also see here how pride lies at the heart of divisiveness or division. So Ephraim is enraged here uh, toward uh, their brothers in Manasseh and this particular clan of Gilead. Why did you go over there and not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. Uh, So they are absolutely enraged. And part of what's going on here goes back to Genesis chapter 48 where Jacob was blessing these two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. And you remember, Manasseh was the older son. And so Joseph puts his sons forward so that his father can put his right hand on Manasseh, the older son's head, and his left hand on Ephraim, the younger son's head, and to bless them according to their birth order. And what does Jacob do, right? He crosses his hands. He does it backwards. And I put in your outline what uh, what Joseph said at that time from Genesis 48. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall also be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And from that time to the time of this passage, Ephraim has fancied itself as the leading tribe. 
a child of Joseph, a head of Manasseh and of all the other tribes. And in fact, Joseph, uh, Joshua, who led the people through the conquest, was from the tribe of Ephraim. So this is about Ephraim feeling like they've been slighted because this other tribe has gone and won the victory. And so they're going to win back their honor by attacking their brethren. So at the heart of this issue is pride. It's, it's not a healthy pride like we have in our Hoosiers. We root for them, win or lose. This is an unhealthy, sinful pride that puts self above all others. And Matthew Henry, speaking of this, says, Pride was at the bottom of the quarrel. Only by that comes contention. Proud men think all the honors lost that go beside themselves. So children, what Matthew Henry's saying there is if, if you're watching an awards presentation and maybe you could win an award, but instead one of your friends wins the award, then do we feel like, well, that award is wasted because it didn't go to me? Or are we willing to celebrate that our friend got an award or another student got an award that we didn't? And there's a great warning here. Proverbs 13.10 says, By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. And why is it that pride leads to strife? Because so often our pride causes us to assert our own rights, our own superiority, uh, our own position, And what is always the victim is the unity that we have as a part of whatever group uh, we are in. It was a sort of an unfortunate, sad illustration of this just happened in our presbytery recently. And I'm going to speak about this in sort of anonymous terms, but this is public record. One of our sister churches was having uh, an elder election and they asked for... Uh, nominations from the congregation and then they took those nominations and the elders uh, gave a list to the con- to the congregation saying these are men that we believe are qualified for the office of elder and then called the, pe- the congregation to vote and just before the vote one of the men in the congregation not a candidate for the eldership sent an email out to the whole congregation saying this one man that's on this list is not qualified. And his reasons for saying he was not qualified were, in my mind and in the, his session's mind, very trivial. But you see the situation. You've publicly gone to the whole congregation undermining what the elders of the congregation have said. They said that this man was qualified. And, um, and this caused no uh, small amount of division within the congregation. Now, uh, I'm not in any way advocating that we, we can never disagree on things. Uh, but there's a way to do things that uh, leads to division. And often it's our pride that is in the way when we do things like this. I must have my way. I must have my say. You must listen to me. And, uh, and that's what creates division. And this isn't just for churches, right? It's for your family. Uh, it's for your workplace. It's for your friends. Uh, Pride is always there lurking around you uh, and tempting you to say things and to uh, exert your influence in ways that actually lead to division. So this is the warning that pride lies at the heart of our tendency for divisiveness. 
But thirdly, uh, we see here that pride coupled with uh, stubbornness can actually kill you. Uh, So uh, Jephthah gives a very logical answer to this accusation from Ephraim. Uh, Perhaps it's not a soft answer. Uh, Gideon, if you remember, gave quite uh, a a very good answer to Ephraim. He said, no, no, you have really won the greater glory. You captured these two princes. And so he was able to turn away their wrath. But what Jephthah says here is very logical. He says to them uh, in verse 2, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. Now, if you look at your map again, you see Gilead is on the other side of the Jordan River. They're right next to the people of Ammon. So they're the people that are feeling the brunt of this conflict very directly. Well, Ephraim is safely, uh, yes, Ephraim is safely back on the other side of the Jordan River, not experiencing this pressure so heavily. And one of the commentators notes, this may not be unlike what goes on at our southern border in this country, where uh, you might have noticed, like the state of Texas is putting these barriers in the Rio Grande River. And uh, then there's a hue and cry from Washington, D.C. about how you shouldn't do that. It's our job, the federal uh, level, to control the border. And the people in Texas and other border states say, well, then control the border. You're not doing it. And so the urgency is very different on these two parts. And without trying to wade into that whole issue, that's what's going on here. And Gideon's saying, yeah, well, you know, you, you could have helped us. Nobody's helping us. We're the ones living for 18 years under this oppression and feeling it most intensely. So, he says in verse 3, I took my life in my hands. We risked everything to go and fight them. And furthermore, uh, it says that the Lord delivered them into my hand. So at the end of the day, God did bless what we were doing and gave us the victory over Ammon. And we should all be able to celebrate that. Uh, now, perhaps it would have been one thing if they had attacked and they had lost and then Ammon had gotten mad and oppressed everybody more or something like that. But Ephraim is coming to them after they've won. They've been successful. Uh, Arthur Kundal, I think, uh, says this sort of insightfully, how typically human it was for Ephraim to show such indignation after the battle was over. Well, there was no fighting to be done, at least against Ammon. And uh, so this is the accusation and this is the answer. And uh, verse 4 then says, Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim and the men of Gilead defeated. It sounds like here Jephthah, the mighty warrior, you, you insulted him, he's mad, so he just goes on and attacks. But that's not actually all that happened. Because the end of verse 4 tells us that he did it because the men of Ephraim said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. So he attacks the sort of uh, the whole clan that he's a part of. You're fugitives, you're, you're refugees, you're outcasts. Uh, not a smart insult to a man who literally was an outcast, who was pushed out of his tribe and uh, because of his parentage was treated as an outcast. Now we, 
we read this and we think, well, it's just words, it's just an insult, you know, be a, be a man about it and just let it go. But that just shows we don't understand anything about this culture here, which is an honor and shame culture. And so what this is telling us is after Jephthah makes his case for why they went ahead and fought without Ephraim, Ephraim wanted to fight. So this is akin to the Ephraimite leader taking off his glove with a big show and slapping Jephthah across the face. It's, it's absolute refusal to acknowledge the one that God chose to lead the people. And it's open defiance. And so it's a way to insult them intentionally with the idea that, no, we're not going away. We're going to fight. And so that's exactly what happened. And the text tells us in no uncertain terms that Gilead wins this fight. And uh, they win it because, in essence, Ephraim is not only proud, but stubborn and stubbornly foolish in their pride. And now, without trying to make too many parallels, one of the things that's going on in our presbytery is after this event where a member of the congregation questions the elders uh, in an email, the elders discipline the man, uh, a lower level of discipline, and his response has been not to submit to that, but to challenge the session uh, to the presbytery. So now the whole presbytery has to meet in October to hear about this disagreement, which seems like it could be avoided by submitting to one's leadership. Again, this is not about whether disagreements are allowed, but whether open defiance of your session is a healthy way to operate. But I think it is instructive for us because when we couple pride with stubbornness, we are almost always headed for disaster. And you might think back in your own life about examples where this has in fact happened, um, but I guarantee you uh, in the future uh, it will cause struggles. And if you have someone around you who loves you enough to confront you about your pride or something like that, uh, then... Uh, You ought to listen, prayerfully uh, listen, to hear what God might say uh, to us through a brother or sister who loves us enough to confront us. So pride coupled with stubbornness can be deadly. And fourthly, we see here that God is radically committed to unity among his people. Now, verse 5 tells us in the confused aftermath of this battle, the Gileadites seize the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrive. This means the retreating Ephraimites. So again, look at your map. You see that uh, Gilead and Jephthah's forces move back uh, to the Jordan River. And they capture the area there where you have to cross back over. And what they are doing is trying to catch any Ephraimite soldiers who are going back so they don't want them to regroup and to try this stunt again. And so they're catching the soldiers. And they use a little language test to determine who's an Ephraimite soldier who came over to fight against us and who is just a a merchant or somebody traveling by who wants to use the ford. And so it says when 
somebody asked to cross over, they ask him, are you an Ephraimite? And if he says no, then they would say to him, then say Shibboleth. Now, Shibboleth means a flowing stream. Maybe they just say, what do you call this thing right here? And if you say Shibboleth, uh, well, that's how most of the groups pronounce it. But if you say Sibboleth, uh, that's a sure indication that you're an Ephraimite. And I don't know if this is like trying to identify Bostonians by having them say, park the car in Harvard Yard, right? which comes out, park the car in Harvard Yard, or uh, something like that. But this was a, a telltale way to identify uh, an Ephraimite. And, and, and the, the death... The death toll here is astounding. It's 42,000. Now, that probably includes the battle and everything. So it is, it is a, a severe price that they pay. And recognize, this is, I think, uh, one of the commentators said, the only place in the entire Bible where the Hebrew language is being used uh, as a way to, different pronunciations of the language are being used to distinguish between people. And it's quite significant because the language, which is meant to unify uh, people, common language, is here uh, being used to separate out these Ephraimites. So this is a tragic, tragic situation. And then this account ends in verse 7, and Jephthah judged Israel six years, then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. So what is the outcome of all this? And this, I think, is easy to lose because uh, it's such a tragic sequence and it's not uh, like we should be celebrating what happens here in this civil war. But the point is, at the end of the day, Jephthah subdues Ephraim and he is the judge over Israel. Not that just the judge of Gilead. He is the judge of Israel. God establishes him as a leader over the nation in this terrible situation. There you see God overcoming the people's efforts at division to bring about a measure of unity. Now his judgeship only lasts six years, but there's reason to believe, and we'll talk about this next week, that this period of stability lasts for some time after that. So we see God frustrating human attempts at division by, yes, it's through a very drastic means, bringing about a a form of unity by allowing Jephthah to subdue the Ephraimite rebels and to establish his leadership. And it's very challenging reading the commentators who are still trying to say, well, this is all down to Jephthah's inferiority complex, his bad upbringing, and uh, his blind ambition. The text doesn't say anything about that. The passage is actually communicating to you how radically committed to the unity of his church God is. And, And that's how we should interpret this civil war and this bloody outcome that God is establishing His judge despite all these efforts to destroy it. And do you see how the punishment so fits the crime? These proud Ephraimites who go over to fight against their brothers, they're coming back, they're slinking back across the river denying that they're Ephraimites. They, They won't even admit who they are. And then the text actually calls them fugitives, which is the very thing they called 
uh, all the Gileadites earlier when they were insulting them. They slink back as the true fugitives. And I think what we should see here is the, the warning that's coming to, to all of us because God so cares about the unity of His church. If we are found to be those disturbing the unity of the church, if we are agents of division in His church, we need to be aware that God takes that very seriously. I put in the, the outline Titus 3, 10-11, and John preached about this last week. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Someone who disturbs the unity of the church. God's saying, you don't like the unity here? Fine, I'm going to take you out of this church and take you away because the Lord loves His church and is seeking to protect His church. I don't think there's any other way to understand what happens in Acts chapter 5 as, as just a demonstration of how much God cares about the unity of the church. In Acts chapter 5, we're reading about how people are selling their land and they're giving all the money to the church to be used to care for uh, people and to meet needs. And one of the couples there, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a piece of property. They bring part of the proceeds to the church. And they say, here, we brought, we brought all of the money. And the apostles say, really? You brought all the money? Oh, yes, we brought all the money. So they wanted to be seen as generous as the other people who were giving everything. But they weren't really that generous. They were generous. But what are they doing? They're, they're lying. They're letting their pride do something that is undermining the unity of God's church. And how does God deal with them? He strikes them down, dead. It, it, it is, it, it's a drastic thing that God does. And I think we need to be reading in this not only a warning to us about how careful we should be about things we might do that disrupt the unity of the church, but on the other hand, an encouragement to us an encouragement how much God cares, that God is going to overcome the obstacles to bring unity to His church. I am so thankful in the time that I've been in this congregation. We have had some divisive people come in from time to time. And um, it's just fascinating because they cannot find, divisive people need at least a few others, an audience uh, to do their dirty work. And they could never find an audience here. So then they would accuse us all of being unloving or something and then move on. And praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for His grace in that. Recognize God cares very much about the unity of His church. And finally, we want to see here that we seek true unity through Jesus, God's humble deliverer. Again, We've been studying Jephthah. Jephthah was far from perfect, but he was God's appointed deliverer. He was an outcast from his own people. They only brought him back when they needed him. And despite being shamefully treated by them, he pled their cause against Ammon as he tried diplomacy. Then he led them in victory. And now here he is being rejected again by the very people that he saved. Some of them, anyway. And certainly we are meant to see shadows of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in this judge and in His ministry. 
being rejected repeatedly, yet risking giving his life for his people. And recognize that Jesus is absolutely committed to the unity of his people. He prays, when he prays for his disciples at the Last Supper in John 17, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus says a unified church is a witness to the world that he came from heaven to do his work. And the Bible tells us the secret of where the church gets this unity. It's in, and it's in Philippians chapter 2. And I put kind of an extended quote from Philippians 2 in your outline. And there Paul tells them, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. So he's talking about unity. The same love being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. So this is the goal, this unity. And how is it achieved? By esteeming others better than ourselves. That's humility. And then how does that happen? Verse 4, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And this is what Paul is saying. The key to unity is the humility and the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to have the mind of Jesus. And we only get that by the ministry of Jesus in our lives. I don't have this quotation in your outline, but Glenn Scrivener speaking of this says, We are a fractious bunch, we human beings. But here's the solution. Have your mind changed by Jesus. Look again to Him and see humility is greatness, service is glory, sacrifice is divine. When we really think like that, we will esteem each other better than ourselves. Jesus didn't fight back when he was insulted, humiliated, victimized. Rather, he endured it all so that he could pay for our sins, so that he could give us his spirit, so that we might turn away from pride and stubbornness and divisiveness and seek genuine unity in him. And there's many ways God calls you to do this. You may be a very quiet person. And you maybe think, well, I can't be divisive because I never say anything in these group settings. But understand, if we pull into ourselves and and we refuse to engage like like the church needs us to, that in itself is also moving us away from each other. And every one of us is called in our own ways to, to work and push the thing together and to seek unity by ministering in love to one another. So let's rejoice that God mercifully overcomes our natural inclination toward division in order to build unity in his church. Let's pray and thank him for his grace.
Heavenly Father, we do confess before you that in in different ways uh, we have all done things that have contributed to the division uh, of the church. And we pray for your help, Lord, that we each one would be consciously seeking to be agents of unity, uh, drawing each other together, helping each other, loving one another, and doing so because the Lord Jesus Christ has humbly uh, given himself for us. We thank you for the mercy of Christ, and we thank you that in this passage we see how committed you are uh, to overcoming our tendency toward division and bringing unity even out of uh, the chaos. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for how you teach us, and we pray that your Spirit would work in our lives, that we would truly trust our Lord Jesus, and that by his Spirit, you would enable us, Lord, to be seeking unity together. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now uh, we'll sing back in praise in response to God's Word. Uh, We're going to sing from Psalm 78 again, this time Selection J. And as uh, Philip mentioned, that first part we sang spoke about how Ephraim was failing uh, to trust the Lord Now in this section, again, it comes back to Ephraim and does mention how God drove back his enemies, how he ultimately rejected Joseph's tent, and it mentions Ephraim. But how did the people get unity? The tribe of Judah he chose, Mount Zion loved by him. He raised up David from the tribe of Judah to be the shepherd of God's people. And of course, that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our unity is. We follow the Lord Jesus together. So let's stand. We'll sing about our Lord from Psalm 78J.